In this episode of Uncorrelated Minds, Kevin Kalaki and Adam Packer continue their discussion about risk parity and dig deeper into how they built their all-weather core investment strategy. For any risk parity skeptics out there, Kevin and Adam are here to assure you it's just a matter of being able to see the forest for the trees. Wonderful. Thank you for that intro, Patrice. Adam, I think I wanted to start out this podcast with you and I just having a conversation, really a quick summary of our previous podcast on really what was the problem that we were, or what is the problem that we face with our clients in portfolio construction? What is our solution? And today, just the ability to open the hood a little bit, let everyone look underneath and see at a high level how we put the portfolio together. There's obviously a lot of questions and skeptics uh, of this particular approach, risk parity theory, how we put it together and how we make the puzzles work, the, the pieces of the puzzles work and that they all have to work in conjunction is really key to this strategy. So the first part, I think just to recap is just remember the problem is prospect theory. And it is that human beings feel the pain of a loss twice as much as they feel the pleasure of a gain. And so we are trying to solve for the fact that people don't experience risk the same way that the statisticians want them to experience it. And our solution to that is implementing a risk parity structure in our portfolio process. And the goal there is to balance the risks, not the asset classes, which in turn creates in uh, what we call is the upside to downside capture ratio that combats that prospect theory, something that has more upside than downside potential. As a recap there, we'll talk about that. But more importantly, let's talk about, Adam, let's start off with just what was the research? Let's talk about the research we conducted as we developed the portfolio structure, and then we'll actually open up the hood a bit onto how that informed the end results of the portfolio. Yeah, I think when we look at it, there's really two main figures in the all-weather and risk parity field that really uh, were influential in how we constructed our investment strategy. The first being Ray Dalio, who was the one who coined the term all-weather. And the second was Ed Shin. For any of our listeners uh, on our last podcast, Ed Shin was the one who actually coined the term risk parity. And he's currently the CIO of Panagora Asset Management. But while I'll definitely talk a little bit more about Ed Shin. Kevin, I think you should get into Ray Dalio. And he was really the the first to adopt this all-weather approach in the late 90s when when he was uh, trying to come up with a strategy for his own family office. That's right. And I think Ray Dalio said to himself, if I'm going to create you know, generational wealth for my children, my grandchildren, it was really his generation skipping trusts that he developed the portfolio for. He wanted to have a portfolio that was able to perform in all weather in any condition. His economic team at Bridgewater really devised a a four box quadrant that looked at what environments will a portfolio typically find itself in at any given time. And a way to look at that is uh, economic. And so really you have growth, you know, inflation, and it's either rising or falling. So your four quadrants are you've got growth up and inflation up, or you have growth up and inflation down, or you have growth down and inflation down and growth down and inflation up. And so really trying to find the right asset classes to introduce to solve for each of those quadrants was the core of his research. And he came up with a fantastic process of um, developing the portfolio and then actually implementing it. He had a little bit more scale than we do being a wealth management shop as opposed to a hedge fund and investing for institutional folks as opposed to what I call human beings 
<laughs> or actual individual <laughs> people who are really going to experience right. the portfolio. And that's, I think, Adam, what led us to really focus on some of the research of Ed Chen because of how we had to implement this portfolio. That's right. When it comes to implementing a, a four-quadrant approach, things can get a, a little tricky because investments can perform well in multiple quadrants. For example, stocks typically do well when the economy is growing, but stocks can do well both in a market where you have rising inflation and one where there's disinflation, which means no inflation, or deflation, which means falling prices. Typically, a rising economy where GDP is growing translates into rising prices, but that's not always the case. You can have an improving economy where prices aren't necessarily going up, at least in the short term. So given that, how much should you allocate to stocks? As you mentioned, Kevin, we, we turned really to Ed Shin's research on risk parity. And as I mentioned before, Ed Shin's the CIO of Panagora, and he's the one who actually coined the term risk parity. But his research quantifies risk parity by identifying three primary risk premiums. That's stocks, bonds, and then inflation hedging assets. And those inflation hedging assets are typically some form of commodity-related assets. But this is a key difference versus traditional balanced portfolios. As we've discussed in the past, a 60-40 portfolio, which is 60% allocated to stocks and 40% allocated to bonds, may seem like it's diversified, but it doesn't really generate its returns in that same proportion, in that same 60-40 proportion. In general, most of that return and most of the risk is driven by just that 60% allocation to equities. Now, why is that? Well, it's a couple of things, but oftentimes investors try to solve for this by looking at diversifying their bond portfolio. For example, they might buy things like high-yield corporate bonds. They think that they're creating a, a more diversified, higher-returning portfolio, and that may seem to make sense, especially with treasury bond yields so low. But what that ends up doing is actually creating a less diversified overall portfolio. That's because assets like high-yield corporate bonds are more correlated to equities. The value of that debt's influenced by the underlying corporation's ability to pay, and the performance of those companies are typically more cyclical and thus more sensitive to the overall economic environment, just like those equities, uh, the equity of those same companies. What a well-diversified portfolio, in contrast, needs is to invest in assets that are uncorrelated or ideally negatively correlated. So when I look at things like high-yield bonds or other fixed-income categories like asset-backed bonds, I don't view them for, from the perspective of diversifying away from equities, but they're instead really another form of that equity risk premium because they're influenced by a lot of the same factors that generate volatility in stocks. Also, that 60-40 portfolio is missing that third risk premium bucket that I mentioned, inflation hedging assets. It's when you combine stocks, bonds, and inflation hedging assets and invest in a proportion that equally distributes the risk across those three categories that you end up with a really well-diversified portfolio. And when you implement it with uncorrelated or negatively correlated investments, you get that all-weather portfolio that's based on Ed Shin's risk parity principles, and that's designed to perform in those various market environments, those four quadrants that you mentioned before, Kevin. So that's a little bit on the theory behind portfolio construction. Kevin, I think we should talk a little bit about how we implement our all-weather core portfolio. I think it's really important to highlight why we chose to implement the portfolio with low-cost passive ETFs. And importantly, I think we should talk about why we don't use any leverage. And as you know, leverage is, is pretty common for many risk parity strategies. 
That's right. I, I think at the end of the day, when you are finding yourself in a situation where you have to implement a risk parity portfolio, there's a number of different ways to go. And some of these uh, choices that we made in the implementation are going to fall into the, the common critiques, which we're going we're gonna to touch on next, really just kind of highlight highlight the critics and, and then highlight our research into why we've already come out and debunked those critics in those certain areas. And so most importantly, we need to remember that we're investing for people. Uh, and these people, most of these assets are in taxable accounts. A large chunk of these assets, given the size of our clients, are in taxable accounts. And so we can't just haul off and trade as much as we want and turn the portfolio over because the incremental cost of doing that from a tax side will erode the returns pretty significantly. And so when we had to implement it, we looked for low-cost ETFs or index funds that we can implement that had a high level of liquidity because our families do occasionally need to access this capital for certain things. And then we also needed it to be very tax-friendly. We needed to have a very low tax friction. What's important to remember is that all of those pieces are were very intentionally built into the portfolio. They didn't just happen out of the backside um, of the, the research process. They were really built into the structure from the get-go. And so most importantly, all of that in the portfolio, we have to remember that when we build in all of these pieces, that clients don't define risk the way that the statisticians want to. I think Adam can shake his head with me on this one, but you know, we've, we ask our clients sometimes, hey, would you define risk for me? And I've, I can still say this today, zero. No one has ever looked at me square in the eye and said, Kevin, standard deviation, definitely <laughs> standard deviation. They don't think that way. They define risk as losing money. It's like, wow, novel concept. Let's actually serve the clients and solve the problems that they have, not the ones that we've created to try to make ourselves look better from a statistical standpoint. So hopefully that gives a little bit of insight into how we're implementing that. So really we're doing it, a lot of it from an ETF standpoint. The majority of the portfolio comes from low cost tax efficient ETFs being balanced from a risk standpoint. Yeah, I think the challenge with any risk parity strategy is historically this is a institutional level portfolio. And the challenge and what we've built here is translating that institutional level of risk allocation and diversification and finding a solution that we can implement for those ultra high net worth clients. And I think one of the, the main differences and, and one of the, the main criticisms that people like to point to when they're talking about risk parity is leverage because most institutional portfolios are using leverage and there's obviously a cost to, to utilizing leverage. But I think, Kevin, let's talk about that as critique number one, leverage. What's, what's the main focus and why do people like to point to leverage as what's wrong with risk parity and how do we solve for that? Yeah, really, I think the most important thing to understand when looking at leverage in a risk parity portfolio is why are why is it being applied in the first place? What is the goal? What are we attempting to accomplish by adding that leverage? And on the interest rate exposure and the interest rate premium side, what we're trying to do is in, in very high level summaries, we're trying to take the 
the return profile of, of say the 10-year treasury bond and we're trying to leverage it up to have the return profile of the equity component of the portfolio. Again, bringing that up to parity. And so there's really two ways to accomplish that. The first way is to apply leverage. And typically at the institutional level, it's done through futures contracts. And we can just go back to March of 2020 and watch what happened with a lot of right. the treasuries and the future contracts when they got into a short squeeze, or at least got squeezed from a, a leverage standpoint in the bond markets. And then the second way to do it and the way we apply or, or achieve that return structure in the interest rate bucket is to extend our duration on the portfolio. So we actually go out a little bit further on the yield curve and, and pick up the return profile out there. And the advantage to us in that point is, A, we can do it very cost effectively within the ETF structures. Uh, we actually use uh, multiple pieces ranging from all the way to as you know, short as a three-year bond portfolio out to a 30-plus year bond portfolio to control the duration when we need to, because it's not just about buying 30-plus year treasuries and holding on to them. It's making sure that the balance of those is always achieving the right parity for us. Right. And speaking of that, Adam, I'm going to let you touch a bit on probably, I would say we touched leverage first being maybe the highest critique, but I would say the the most often heard critique we get is that you, we have so much in bonds. Yeah, I think people have oftentimes have a short-term memory because I think, in, as you mentioned, in, in March 2020, everyone was talking about leverage uh, as the, the number one issue because you can just Google search it. And there are a lot of articles that highlighting how risk parity strategies that were levered didn't do so well when the market went down. And that's because they, they had the margin calls and that they were trading with a, a short-term perspective. But I mentioned this a little earlier talking about high-yield bonds, but another common critique about risk parity, or at least the way we invest in that strategy, is that we're currently solely invested as U.S. Treasuries, as you mentioned, Kevin. The criticism, and I'm sure all the listeners have read an article or two or three or even more, is that Treasury prices can only go down from here because yields are near zero. Yep. Now, uh, just as a refresher, bond prices are inversely related to yields. So if yields go up, bonds lose value. Well, one, we can still see yields go lower and we can point to countries like Japan or Germany where yields have gone negative. And two, from a relative standpoint, whether interest rates are high or low, we think treasuries are still the most effective hedge. It's not always going to be perfect, but when you look at the historical track record, specifically for those long-term treasuries you mentioned, They've offered, in our opinion, the best hedge against stock market corrections, even in low-yield environments. Kevin, had, you had mentioned on the last podcast that every investor's perfect investment is one with 100% upside and 0% downside. Well, that okay. doesn't exist, and neither does the perfect hedge. There's always going to be a cost-benefit trade-off, but you know, for us, we're, we're very comfortable with our decision to go with treasuries for our current bond allocation, that interest rate risk premium you mentioned in our all-weather core portfolio. Yeah, and it's always, for us, Adam, you and I are looking at data back to the 20s. Yeah. on this portfolio structure. And so it's really hard to point to data, even in the 70s, when we had really interesting times in, in the treasury markets, but on a much shorter time period, we can look back to 2011. Interest rates were at zero to 0.25. And I, I believe our long-term treasury holding was up 33% that year. You don't have to have 
the concept of buying bonds only for yield. And right. now, if you're buying positively correlated bonds, then that might be a high level of concern for you. But really looking to find a bond structure that provides that negative correlation and that lift, even when yields are low, it has the ability to really drive that return. Adam, just covering, you said the, the perfect investment is one with 100% upside and 0% downside. And we always look at the core portfolio. And we know that, yes, we've created a portfolio that has 66% of the upside and about 35%, 33% of the downside of a typical market portfolio. But I would say critique three of the portfolio of anything is that it just doesn't, it's not correlated to the stock market. So it when the market's on fire, the all-weather will lag. It'll even lag its counterparts in the 60-40 because they have 95, 98, 99% of their risk based in the stock market. And I, I think there's two responses I always say to this is, is number one is I would much rather lag in an up market than signif and, and significantly outperform in a down market. So I, I would rather be the individual who is really protecting capital in down markets, even if we're giving up a little bit on the up markets comparatively. And that, again, goes back to your prospect theory. And then the second is it's also important to remember that the all-weather core is exactly that. It's a core portfolio. Those assets that our clients are investing or have asked us to invest for them that have long time horizons, those we do expose to significant equity risk because the statistics bear out the efficacy of that strategy. So in other words, if we're holding something for more than 15 years, there's never been a period where stocks did not perform bonds over a 15 year stretch, at least back to the data period that we are evaluating. And so really our clients are, if they're looking at their portfolio just in and of itself, so the just the core portfolio versus everyone else in the world, they may look at that and say, I am missing out. But if they're actually looking at their, what we call their aspirational risk portfolio, they're typically doing pretty well. We're usually going to get right about market returns in there. And sometimes a little more depending on the alternatives. And I'll leave that as a piece for future podcasts. But I think Adam, someone asked us one time is how, how many of your clients use core portfolio for everything? And I think it's almost zero. It's very rare that we have someone who has all of their assets in the core portfolio. And so therefore they have we'll call them buckets for the simplicity of the podcast. They have buckets that are performing in equity type risk and they have buckets that are really preserving wealth for short-term income needs. Yeah, the all-weather core portfolio is definitely the main component of, of our asset allocation glide path, so to speak. But you know, when we're, we're dealing with individual client conversations, it's usually a combination of growth and or income for various investment objectives. And so the all-weather core is is not that going to be the only component because, as you mentioned, for the clients looking for more growth, they're going to be in more market equity-oriented portfolios to supplement that core portfolio. And then for the clients who need more income, we, can, we have what we call our lifestyle portfolios that are designed for you know, capital preservation and income with a, a shorter investment horizon. But the last point I'd like to address, the last critique, is market timing, which ties into those last two criticisms we've mentioned with fear of missing out, the FOMO of the equity upside. And what I talked about earlier, the critics trying to say now is not a good time to own bonds. It's really hard to see the forest for the trees when you're invested in a diversified portfolio where one asset class might be doing very well and another is underperforming. 
over the long term, we all know diversification works really well, but when stocks are up, as they have been over the past year, investors are sometimes really quick to get rid of bonds, searching for whatever reason they can find. But whether it's buying or selling, those critiques all boil down to wanting to time the market. People are wired to want to chase the winners and get rid of the perceived losers. Unfortunately, the reality is you can't time the market. I think, Kevin, you and I have been in the industry long enough and have done enough research to know that market timing just doesn't work. What does work is diversification, as we mentioned before, and true diversification that invests in those uncorrelated asset classes. But because of behavioral finance and prospectory and all the other things we've talked about, that's easier said than done, since these biases are, are really na they're, they're natural instincts. Fortunately, it's a lot easier to overcome those behavioral biases when you have an advisor who can help steer a portfolio in the right direction. And when it comes to something like risk parity and, and a portfolio like our all-weather core, that sometimes requires a bit of re-education and sitting down with our clients and showing them our research. But in the end, our clients, just like Kevin and me, have become big proponents of our all-weather approach. Fortunately, as the, our podcast title for this episode says, they can now see the forest for the trees. That's right. And I, I think the most important thing is that the, you know, clients will give us a call and say, how can you own bonds right now? So-and-so says that bonds are a bad investment. And I'm just using this to pick on right now because it's the most common thing we hear. <laughs> right. Trust me, we've done the research. We've run the numbers on it. A, there's no way to time even the bond markets, even with interest rates. There's really no way to time them, especially where we are on the risk curve within the bond markets being far out on the duration. And then B, when you exit an asset class that has a substantial amount of volatility, that you give up the risk premium for the asset class. And so therefore, even if we exit bonds, the overall return of the portfolio, uh, and potentially even over a short period of time can fall significantly because you wanna look at everything over a long time horizon, but not realize that even in the, the intermediate terms, there are swings within those because of the volatility and you're missing Missing really big updates within a period that may be flat inside of there. And so you're giving up risk premium in those bond portfolios. So I think while we could look at a number of other pieces of the, the portfolio for this podcast, I think that gives a really good summary of the most common critiques of the portfolio or criticisms that we hear from our clients to really let the listeners know and understand that we've done the research, we've taken a look at this. And for us, it really is about finding where there is a balance of risk in, in this crazy economic world that we're in and a world where Fed intervention has become the norm instead of the markets being allowed to do their own thing. It's even more so risky to exit one of the asset classes or one of the risk premiums. Adam, thanks for joining me. As always, you know, please reach out, find us at sinaceracapital.com, uh, S-I-N-E-C-E-R-A capital.com, and uh, give us a call. Kevin, Adam, great discussion, great insights into your all-weather core investment strategy. Listeners, make sure you subscribe to Uncorrelated Minds, get the latest episodes, and of course, share with friends and colleagues. Please, we'd love to hear from you too. Send us some comments. Cenacera Capital LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cenacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. 
It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment. All investments include a risk of loss that clients should be prepared to bear. The principal risks of Cenocera strategies are disclosed in the publicly available Form ADV Part 2A. Asset allocation may be used in an effort to manage risk and enhance returns. It does not, however, guarantee a profit or protect against loss. Generally, among asset classes, stocks are more volatile than bonds or short-term instruments. Government bonds and corporate bonds have more moderate short-term price fluctuations than stocks, but provide lower potential long-term returns. U.S. Treasury bills maintain a stable value if held to maturity, but returns are generally only slightly above the inflation rate. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss. The use of leverage as part of the investment process can multiply market movements into greater changes in an investment's value, thus resulting in increased volatility of returns. Increase in real interest rates can cause the price of inflation-protected debt securities to decrease. Interest payments on inflation-protected debt securities can be unpredictable. Risk associated with equity investing includes stock values which may fluctuate in response to the activities of individual companies in general market and economic conditions. Although bonds generally present less short-term risk and volatility risk than stocks, bonds contain interest rate risks, the risk of issuer default, issuer credit risk, liquidity risk, and inflation risk.